We've made it to chapter 11 of the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 11, Paul clearly sets forth what is happening with the nation of Israel today. Are they still God's people? Does God still have a plan for them? Has God cast them aside for another group or another nation? We've been looking at these three chapters in Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, as one complete section. And they are one complete section, but you can make the case that chapters 9 and 10 are really the setup for what he's going to take us through here in the 11th chapter, because it's in chapter 11 that we see the main thrust of the point that Paul is trying to make. If you remember back several weeks in our study, we saw at the beginning of this section that Paul had a great burden for the people of Israel. He said at the very beginning of chapter 9, first verses, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And this was our introduction to this section of the letter where he talked about this sorrow, this grief that he had for his kinsmen according to the flesh. How he wished that he could take their place if he could. He had a great burden for his kinsmen, the Jews. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And in the next verses, he details out how they were a people that were specially blessed by God in every way having been given covenants, promises, the temple service, even the Messiah had come to earth through the nation of Israel. But then remember what he said in verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 9 said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that's really what starts off this explanation through these three chapters, as he shows that the word of God has not failed. Every blessing that Israel received was not a lost cause. It was not a mistake. It all still applies. It is still in effect. He went then into a discussion through the rest of chapter 9 on the sovereign plan of God, showing that God had always intended to save some from the nation of Israel, but not every single physical individual from the nation. And he gave examples. The promises came through Isaac but not any of other Abraham's sons. They came through Jacob, but not Esau. From the very beginning, God showed that the promises were not automatically applicable to all, but to some, and that some was based off of God's sovereign choice. Out of sinful humanity, God sovereignly chose some to save and some to harden. In his mercy, he sovereignly chose to save some sinners from condemnation. Now, as we got to the end of chapter 9, and then we went into chapter 10, we saw how this salvation comes about, and he related it to Israel's current situation. Salvation is a matter of faith. Faith in the revelation that God has given. In our age, it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? God's plan of salvation for mankind is that they must respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. It's a saving message that is to go out to the entire world, not merely given to one specific group of people. In our study of chapter 10, we saw that the gospel is meant for all. It is applicable to all. This was first seen all the way back in Romans chapter 1. Remember our theme verse for the entire letter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. He said in verse 4 of chapter 10, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He said in verses 12 and 13, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is meant for everyone. It is applicable to all, Jew and Gentile alike, but it was first offered to the Jews. Back again to the blessings that we saw at the beginning of chapter 9. It first came to Israel. So what was the problem? If it was given to the Jews first, 
and it was meant for them, and, and God came to them, why didn't it just stay with them? Because they were looking for the righteousness of God in the wrong way. The verses 2 and 3 of chapter 10, we saw Paul say, For I testify about them, speaking about Israel, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were extremely zealous for God. You could make the case that they still are. But they did not approach Him in the way that he determined that they should approach him. They tried to seek their own righteousness and failed to subject themselves to God's righteousness. The righteousness of God that is found only through Jesus Christ. So they took the law that God had given them and they tried to pursue righteousness through the law. But the righteousness of God couldn't be obtained in the way that they were pursuing it. And that was their problem. He said at the very end of chapter 9, verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They took the law of God and used it as a system of works, thinking that if they kept it and worked really hard at it, that they could obtain righteousness through it. But that was never a possibility. Instead, they should have recognized the law as their own inability to keep the law. That's what the law was showing them. They should have realized they could not keep the law, and they should have put their faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is where the Jews failed. They failed to put their faith in their own Messiah. When the good news of Christ came to them, they rejected him. Verse 16 of chapter 10, Paul said, however, they did not all heed the good news. And this is what has Paul so grieved, so burdened for his people. They have rejected their God. And in light of this, God has turned his attention away from Israel and the gospel has been offered elsewhere. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 10, Paul said there, but I say surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Israel was told many years before Jesus was even born, way back in Moses' day, that a people who were spiritually senseless would be used to make them jealous, to bring them to jealousy, to bring them to anger. And that salvation would be given to a people who didn't even seek God, didn't even look for God. Now that is where we left off in our last study. And specifically, we ended our last section with a quote by Paul from the book of Isaiah in verse 21 of chapter 10, where he says, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And this quote shows the reaction of a patient God to a disobedient people. God has time after time after time after time given Israel every opportunity to repent. You read through the Old Testament and all you see there is God reaching out time after time after time to his people. And they time after time after time reject the opportunities that God has given them. And what we come to now is a question and potentially a turning point. Has God's patience with them finally come to an end? As Paul just indicated from the quote, from Isaiah in the preceding two verses, since God has turned his attention away from the Jews and he has focused on the Gentile nations, the senseless people that weren't even seeking God, the question has to be asked, has God rejected the Jewish people? Is he done with Israel as a nation? At times it appears that way to people today. And it especially appeared that way to people in the early churches, as Jews as a nation had seemingly ceased to exist. They had been scattered. They no longer were occupying their land. 
their conclusion in many cases was to look for other ways in which these promises that God had given and these prophecies might be fulfilled. And one of the ways was to make the promises that had been given to Israel and instead say that these promises now belong to the church, thus making Israel and the church one and the same. Now, there's no doubt that a Jew can become a part of the church, that the church has not replaced the nation of Israel. This way of thinking, I believe, shows a lack of trust in the promises of God, in the way that God gave his promises. God promised something to Israel, and if nothing else, he deserves our patience to see his promises through. And this kind of thinking really isn't anything new. It certainly happened before, even with those who love God, that taking the promises of God and thinking, this must be something different than what I understand it to be. Taking what God has promised and trying to interpret it differently. You look at Abraham, way back in Genesis, right? Abraham was, was promised by God to have descendants, right? Abraham was already an old man when he was given that promise. And what does Abraham do? As time goes on, the years go by, Abraham thinks that he's in a seemingly helpless position. He tries to make his servant his heir. He says, well, if I'm to have heirs, I guess I'll make my servant my heir. That's not what God wanted. Years later, years after that, Sarah, his wife, comes up with a plan, and they, they, they go into Hagar, Sarah's maid, and have a son through her. Says, maybe this is supposed to be my heir. Was any of that how God had it planned out? No. Abraham needed to be patient. For 25 years, this plan, this promise was in the work. Just think if you had been given a, a promise 25 years ago, and here you stand today thinking, yep, I still think that promise is good. There was doubt in Abraham's mind. But during that time, Abraham went through periods where he thought that it needed to be accomplished other ways. Another example is the 400 years of captivity of the, of the Israelites in Egypt. 400 years of slavery. They had been given the promises of land that they would be their own land, and here they were living in slavery for 400 years in the nation of Egypt. Do you think maybe doubts crept into their minds that God's promises might not come to pass? Apart from God, there wasn't any way that that could happen, but God had still promised that. Now, we come to our situation today with Israel. This is the same kind of thought process that people go through today. 2,000 years later, and maybe for 2,000 more years, the length of time doesn't change the trustworthiness of God. He will fulfill his promises just as he gave them. And this is what we see in Romans chapter 11, probably the most significant chapter on the nation of Israel in the New Testament. Paul is going to go through and show us the plan of God for the nation of Israel as it pertains to them today. And so we're back to our question. The last thing that we saw in chapter 10, God holding out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul then asked the question in verse 1 here of chapter 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? The then here refers back to the close of chapter 10. They've rejected him. Has God rejected them? The idea of the word rejected is on them being thrust away. This is referring to permanent rejection. Is God done with the nation of Israel? Has he abandoned them? Well, he never did it before. Why would we think that he has done it now? The way that this question is asked demands a negative answer. The wording here calls to mind some Old Testament references. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. Samuel here is telling the people, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Samuel says God will not abandon his people. Why? On account of all that they've done? how good they are, how faithful they remain? No, on account of his great name. He won't abandon them because of who he is. 
not because of them. He has made a promise and he will carry it out because he is faithful, not because of anything that they have done. Psalm 94, 14 simply says, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. He has chosen them. He will not abandon them. They were chosen as his own inheritance, and he will not forsake that. I want to look at one of these. Turn over with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. This is in the middle of the section dealing with God's promise of the new covenant. A new covenant with Israel, new covenant with Judah. And within this, Jeremiah 31, down in verse 35... It says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, God is the one who does all of this with creation, right? This is the God that we're dealing with. He is the one who is in view here with the following action. Verse 36. If this fixed order departs, from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. What's he saying here? If the fixed order of day and night goes away, then Israel will be rejected by God. Has that happened? I don't think so, right? I, nine o'clock last night, it got dark out at, I don't know, I wasn't up when it got light, but six o'clock this morning or whenever it was, the light came up, right? The fixed order has not stopped. It still goes on. He also says if the heavens and the depths of the earth can be measured. You know what, science can't even do that today. Right? I mean, the more we find out about space in the heavens, the more we know what we don't know. We can't figure out how far everything is out there. We can't even go down to the very bottom of the depths of the ocean. Right? Don't even forget about the depths of space. We can't even figure out everything that's at the bottom of the ocean yet. We can't explore that. If we could measure that, then God will cast off Israel. Has any of these things happened? No. Not back in Paul's day, not even in our day. So then if they haven't happened, how can people today say that God is done with the nation of Israel? So as we come back to Romans, what do you think Paul's response to the question is going to be? May it never be. Meganointo. That's our word. That's our phrase that we've seen over and over again through Romans. Absolutely not. God forbid. What a ridiculous thought. Has God rejected Israel? The question should be as ridiculous to us as if we ask, can you breathe without air? Of course not. You can't breathe without air. They are his chosen nation. Now, to prove his point, Paul is going to show us a series of examples and illustrations here. The first example we see, he uses himself, his own personal situation. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself shows that the Jews have not been completely cut off. And here's our first clue. What was Paul? He was a Jew. He was from Israel. A Jew who believed in Jesus Christ for his salvation. What about the apostles? They were Jews as well. Obviously, the Jews had not been completely cut off because salvation was still available to them. There are Jews responding to the gospel. They were back in Paul's day, and there are still even Jews that respond to the gospel today. So we can already see that they are not completely cut off. They are not completely rejected. They can't be. There were at least some, at least one here, that had believed the gospel. It's important to note, as Paul uses himself as an example, that he shows himself to be an Israelite. He says, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, What does this show? This shows Paul's Israelite status is based on his physical lineage, not a spiritual lineage. 
I point this out because some would have us believe that anyone who is a believer, a member of the church, is now part of spiritual Israel. And they say that's what this chapter is really talking about. That's what this chapter is referring to. That Paul is really here saying that he's saved as a member of the new Israel, the church. But if that's what Paul is saying, why does he point out his physical association with the nation of Israel? If I'm a spiritual Israelite and I can claim Abraham as my spiritual father in the sense that we see in Romans chapter 4, Paul does refer to him that way. He's a father of many nations, the forerunner of those saved by faith. But in what sense am I the spiritual descendant of Benjamin? Where does the Bible talk about that? It doesn't. That's not in there. This is a claim by Paul of his physical association with God's chosen nation. I am a Jew. I am physically from that nation of people, is what he's saying. Pointing down his own lineage from Abraham through Israel or Jacob, even through Jacob's son, Benjamin. And this is so important. I point this out because of so many people who want to spiritualize Israel and make the church the new Israel. Paul is proving that the physical nation of Israel has not been rejected. And his own physical association shows that. And he reiterates this point again as we get to verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he says. Now there's a bit of a change here. In verse 1, Paul was identifying himself with this nation. They're Paul's people. He belongs with them. But now he's firmly putting them in the camp of being his people, God's people. And this is a major statement in this chapter. He has not rejected his people. We're dealing in this chapter with national Israel, with his people. In what way are they his people? In the way that he's chosen them. He foreknown them. Keep in mind, we're, t- we're dealing with the concept of election, but there are two different types of election, two different types of choosing that we talk about with this. There is an individual election, an election that anyone who is saved is a part of. Any individual who has ever been saved, past, present, or future, has been individually elected or chosen by God. But the election here that he's talking about is a national election. And this is a choice that God made to make the nation of Israel his chosen nation. These are the people whom he loved in a special way, whom he specially bestowed blessings upon. And we see this election, this foreknowing of God, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, where God says, You only have I chosen, and that word there is known, you only have I known among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You see, as God reveals to them through the prophet Amos, they are the only nation whom God has chosen, whom God has known. This foreknown, this knowledge, we talked about this when we were back in chapter 9. This, actually chapter 8, I think it was. This is a knowledge, this is a special kind of knowledge that he has for them. It doesn't mean that he just knows something about them. It means that he knows them in a special way. And this is his selection of them. And they are the only nation that God has ever chosen for himself. As hard as it may be for us to accept sometimes, the United States is not God's chosen nation. We, we aren't. There are individuals within our country that are saved. We're a good example of that here. But even if someday we have a Christian president and every member of the government is also a Christian, that would still not make our country God's chosen nation. That blessing is reserved for Israel alone. The point is that having foreknown them, specially choosing them for himself, making them his own, he will not reject them. Well, how does Paul support this? Well, like he's done throughout this section, he's going to support this through some Old Testament examples. He says, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? This is a reference back to 1 Kings, right? 1 Kings chapter 19. In this context, in the context of what we see back there, we won't take the time to see it, but Elijah has been forced to flee, right? Jezebel 
is after him. And you probably remember the account of Elijah with the prophets of Baal and the, the sacrifice off, whatever you want to call it. The, the, the competition they have where they have two altars and the prophets of Baal need to bring fire on their altar and, and Elijah is the one that uh, needs to pray to God to bring fire to his altar. Well, Elijah wins. Right? You can look up the account yourselves later on. But Elijah wins. The prophets of Baal end up losing and being consumed by fire from God. Well, this doesn't sit well with Jezebel. So she's out to get Elijah. Well, Elijah's on the run. And he's upset with Israel's disobedience, with the way in which they have rejected God. So much so that he pleads with God against them. Well, God speaks to Elijah, and Elijah responds to him. And this is what we have here in verse 3. It says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Look at the unfaithfulness of the nation. They have killed the prophets of God. You sent prophets to them, they killed them. They have torn down your altar. They are even out to kill me, Elijah. And here Elijah has stood up against the prophets of Baal, and God has clearly won against them, and the people are still out to kill him. The nation has totally and completely rejected God. Only Elijah is left. He is the only one from the entire nation that is faithful to God. Isn't that what Elijah says? That's Elijah's perspective here. He says, I alone am left. From his perspective, he doesn't see that there is anyone else beside himself that is faithful to God in that situation. But that wasn't exactly the case. Look at verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Was Elijah alone? No. God had kept for himself 7,000 men. Elijah had been worried that he was by himself, even asking God if he could die. But God assures him that he wasn't alone because God is at work. What is he at work doing? Keeping a small group of Israelites for himself. Now 7,000, we think of 7,000, that's, that's a lot of people. But compared with all of Israel, probably numbering in the millions at this point in time, that's a very small number, a very small group of people. But it's a number of people that have not rejected God, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And where is the credit for this given? Is it because of Elijah's ministry? No. God doesn't say, good job, Elijah, they listen to you. No. Out of the disobedient nation, he is responsible. He, God, is responsible for saving this group of people for himself. In his sovereign work, he keeps them for himself. In the first four chapters of the book of Acts, we see some 8,000 men of Israel become saved. Added alongside the likes of Paul and the other apostles, men that God had determined to be saved, Jews who had been saved by faith in the gospel. They had been saved. Now, they were still in the minority, but they were part of this small group to which Paul is alluding to here. He's talking about, and we see this more in verse 5 as Paul relates God's work back in Elijah's day to what he's doing in Paul's day. He says in verse 5, In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And this right here is what God is presently doing with the nation of Israel. At the present time. And it was present in Paul's day. And it's still what's going on today. It hasn't changed. He's keeping a remnant. God's focus is on this remnant, the faithful few out of Israel, the few who had truly believed, accepted the gospel. And this shows how 8,000 from Acts that we mentioned were included. They, along with the apostles and others, including those Jews that are saved today, are part of this remnant of Israel. And who determines this remnant? God does. It's according to His gracious choice. Literally, His election of grace is what this says here. It's according to His election of grace. 
And once again, we see the concept of election brought up here. He talked about it at length in chapter 9. And we're reminded that it is not based on the merit or the work of the individual. And how do we know this? Because it's by grace. It's by the grace of God. It is by His unmerited or undeserved favor that this remnant is saved, that they have been chosen by God. Now this is where the difference between national and individual election again comes into play. When talking about the election and the foreknowledge of God, when it pertains to the nation of Israel and to individuals, Israel as a nation has been chosen by God, and that's what we saw in Amos 3.2. They are the only nation chosen by God. God deals with that nation differently than He deals with any other nation on earth. But not every member, physical member of the nation of Israel is individually chosen by God. And we saw that back in chapter 9, verse 6. We read the first part of chapter 6 before, but it is not, uh, verse 6 before, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not every physical Jew is the recipient of God's blessing. Only those whom we saw in chapter 10, when we got to chapter 10, that accept the gospel of God through faith in the Son. This is where the individual election comes in. Out of the nation that God has specially chosen, God has individually chosen some for himself. This is the remnant that Paul was talking about. And we saw this also back in chapter 9. This isn't the first time he's mentioned the remnant. 9.27 He said, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Out of all of the Jews, even though they number like the sand of the sea, it is the small number, the remnant, that will be saved. The point is that the Jews shouldn't be disheartened, as Elijah was. Because even though it seems hopeless, much like it has to be, uh, much like it has to the church over the last 2,000 years, God is sovereign, and he is saving some for himself. He is still and always will be saving some from the nation of Israel. As we come to verse 6, we see Paul discuss and clarify the work, this work of grace that he's talking about, God's gracious choice. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now here he's making a distinction again regarding the Jews, and this will carry on into the following verses. We saw in chapter 10 how the Jews were pursuing righteousness. They were zealous for it. But what was their problem? They didn't have zeal in accordance with knowledge, right? They were doing it all wrong. In verse 3 of chapter 10, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were seeking a righteousness that could be obtained by keeping the law, and that was never possible through the law. That was a righteousness of works, on the basis of works, as he's talking about here. And God never made provision for anyone to be saved on the basis of works. So as Paul presents the definition of grace here, he's speaking to the Jews' failure, turning the law into a law of work. So the question then is, how does one become righteous? If it wasn't through keeping the law, how does one become righteous? And it's by God's sovereign choice, his gracious or undeserved choice of them. Again, because of our building blocks, right? We've talked about that all through the book of Romans, building blocks. Everything's built on everything. None of this is new territory. All of this is stuff that we've talked about before. Paul went over this way back in chapter 4. Turn back with me to chapter 4. Let's just review this for a second. Up at the end of chapter 3, Paul establishes this line of thought in verse 28 when he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he's moving from a discussion on the law to his discussion of grace, which he firmly establishes in chapter 4. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? 
So remember, he brings up here the example of Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. How was Abraham saved? How was he declared to be righteous? Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And here's a hypothetical situation that he presents here. Abraham didn't have the law. So we're not talking about the law. So being saved by the law is off the table for Abraham. But if he was saved by his works, works of any kind, then he would have something to boast about. If I can save myself, make myself righteous, if I can do something, any little thing, to add to my salvation, then I can say, well, I did that. I contributed this. But that's what he's saying here about Abraham. If that were the case, but he says at the end of verse 2, but not before God. That is not the case. There is no boasting before God. And how do we know that? We'll look at verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. It was his belief in God that was credited to him as righteousness. Belief is not a work. It is a God-given response to the call of the gospel. Remember our discussion in chapter 10, where we saw the process of someone responding in faith. Someone is sent to them, communicates God's word to them, they hear it, they believe it, they call out to God. And that was the same process that Abraham went through, or Abram went through. There's a different message, but it was the response to God's call, God communicating to Abram and Abram believing it. So now in verses 4 and 5, we see the point of grace and not works. He says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, that's grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. If salvation is based on works of any kind, even in a small amount, then grace has no part in it. There can't be both. It is either grace or works. If I mow someone's yard, someone asks me to mow their yard, and they like the job I do, and they give me a million dollars because I mowed their yard, you would probably say I got more than I deserved, right? Mowing somebody's lawn is not worth a million dollars. We could all agree on that. But I could still make the case that by doing that work, I earned a million dollars. I could say that I did a job and I earned what was due, no matter how insignificant my portion of it was compared to what I received. In that situation, that million dollars isn't a gift of grace. It's certainly generous. It's certainly more than what the task calls for, but it's not grace. That is still earning something through something that I did. My paycheck that I get every other week, I get paid. That's not my employer being gracious to me. That's receiving what I'm due. But salvation only comes by grace. And that means that there are no works of any kind that anyone does in order to receive that. Believing in the gospel message, putting our faith in that message. Faith, again, is not a work. It is a heart transformed by God allowing us to believe in him, allowing us to trust in what he has provided for us, and that faith only comes by the grace of God. So back in chapter 11, Paul says at the end of the verse, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Grace is unmerited. Grace is by its very definition undeserved. If we do something to earn it in even the smallest way, Grace is no longer grace. It's just like we've been talking about. It becomes a wage. What is due? We do not earn our salvation. Abraham didn't earn his righteousness. The Jews cannot become righteous by following and keeping the law. That completely misses the boat. God's choice is not based on anything we have done or that the Jews had done, neither their national election nor their individual election. It was based solely on on God's gracious choice. And this is very important for us to understand. We cannot take credit for what has happened to us. 
The credit belongs to God. Our salvation is a result of the grace of God, not our own works. Not on God looking ahead in time to see what we would do and then making his decision based on our decision. That's not how it works. God is the one who made the choice, and it was only because of his gracious choice that we could make a decision to love him and accept his gift of salvation. So what's Paul's conclusion to this in verse 7? He shows how it relates back to Israel here. What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. This is a critical verse in this section, because we see here how chapters 9 and 10 really come together. We talked before about how Israel hasn't found what they were seeking. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 9, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. The reason they didn't obtain it? They pursued it by works. They didn't obtain the righteousness of God because they were pursuing it their own way and not God's way. Chapter 10, we saw in detail how they failed in their responsibility. They did not accept the gift that God provided to them, handed to them, was offering to them. So those that comprise the physical nation of Israel, keeping in mind that every single one of them is from the sinful pool of humanity, what happened to them? What is still happening to them? Paul presents two groups here, and they are either in one group or the other. Those that obtained righteousness or salvation, and those that did not obtain it. Who obtained it? Those who were chosen, which is what we saw in detail in chapter 9. The elect have obtained it is the literal translation here. The elect have obtained it. Paul had obtained it. How? He was elect. It is a result of God's sovereign work of grace. The rest of the apostles obtained it the same way. They were chosen by God. How does anyone obtain it? Obtain righteousness, salvation. Through faith, they have to believe, but their belief is brought about by God's choice of them. They respond to God's gift in faith, graciously allowed by his choice or election. Keep in mind, when we talk about choosing or electing, it's the same word we're talking about. This is a simple truth, but it's a difficult concept for people to grasp. And why is that? Because it totally takes it out of our hands. There is humility involved here. This greatly humbles us. But what, will we, what must we remember? That we didn't deserve to be saved at all. God would be totally just to condemn the entire world and just start over. But he didn't. He decided that he would graciously reach out to some of the sinful, depraved lump of humanity, make them his own, justifying them when they didn't deserve to be justified. Praise God that he did that. Otherwise, we would all be still lost in our sins with no hope of ever being saved. And keep in mind, even on a national level with Israel, this is the same thing that he did. There was nothing special about Israel as a nation. There wasn't anything that they had done to warrant his choice of them. If you remember Abram, when he was chosen, he came from a family of idol worshipers. But God graciously chose them as a nation out of all the other nations to belong to him. And again, he didn't have to do that at all, but he graciously did it. So some of Israel has obtained it, obtained righteousness. That's the first group. But what about the rest? What about those that haven't obtained it? The rest were hardened, he says. This isn't the first time we've seen this concept either. Chapter, 18, or chapter 9, verse 18, he says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. The point being that it is God's sovereign choice to deal with sinful humanity as he sees fit. Because, or before, it was regard to saving some, now it's with regard to hardening the rest. We noted back in chapter 9 that we're dealing with sinners in this context. Because if these are neutral people, these aren't neutral people. These aren't people that haven't done anything one way or the other. These, if these are neutral people in view here, those who are not under condemnation, then they wouldn't need mercy. Right? 
But that's what he says here. It's the difference between those who are hardened and those that are shown mercy. It is God's choice as to how he will deal with sinful humanity. And he has no obligation to save any one of us. So when we talk about God hardening the rest, we shouldn't be surprised by this. God is not making them do something that they don't want to do. He is simply allowing them to continue on the path that they have already been following. He is allowing them to become calloused to the righteousness that they claim to seek and therefore continue seeking in the wrong way by their own works. They have become unresponsive to the revelation of God, the revelation of their own Messiah. In the next few verses, we're going to get through chapter or verse 10. I keep saying chapter. We're going to get through verse 10, Lord willing. That's that's our plan. But in the next few verses, we have more quotes. And Paul shows this to be something previously revealed in the Old Testament, not inconsistent with what God had revealed before. He says in verse 8, Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. These words come from both Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, two passages that deal with Israel's refusal to listen to God and the consequences for their disobedience. Big surprise. First one in Deuteronomy deals with them in Moses' day. And keep in mind, this is 1500 B.C., that, that time frame. Deuteronomy 29.2 says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And then 800 some years later, in Isaiah 29.10, it says, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. In both of these passages, what do we see? God giving them over to their ignorance, to their own callousness. Paul uses the term a spirit of stupor, a word that means spiritual insensitivity. He's building on this hardening concept that he's talked about, the same idea of the callousness. This is what happens to people when they have heard the word of God so many times, yet continue to reject it. This is what is happening with Israel. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that won't see and ears that won't hear. They have been handed over to their own foolishness, to their own depravity. They won't listen, and they become insensitive to what God is trying to tell them. Verses 9 and 10. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. This here's a quote from Psalm 69. Let me, let me just read that. Psalm 69, 22 and 23. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. The point here is that what they have come to have great comfort in, what they have come to rely on, right? And in this case, in the case with Israel, it's their own their own pursuit of righteousness based on the law has become a trap, a stumbling block that they can't get past. Once again, the result is that they are without understanding, without the ability to see, to be as the blind who made their way through the streets, hunched over and unable to find their way. And that's a sad picture of Israel that's presented here. We see that today with people all the time. They're so confident in their own path, whether it be another religion that's leading them nowhere, or maybe it's their own blind faith in, in, in scientific theory or explanations, or maybe it's their confidence in their belief that there is no God, that they have absolutely nothing to fear. They put their confidence in these things. They rely on these things. That is their table, and their table becomes a stumbling block to them. It becomes a trap for them. That's the idea here. And so God has given them over, allowed them to follow the path that they were already on. Now, does this apply to them all and forever? 
Thankfully, no. God is not done with his people. He has not cut off the nation of Israel forever. And that's what Paul's point here is. Well, there are individual Jews that have been cut off forever. Those who have been handed over to their own rejection. For those who have died in their sins, never believing in the message of salvation, they are hopelessly and eternally lost. But fortunately, the response of some, and really in this case of most, does not affect God's plan for all. How do we know? How can we be so sure? Because Jews experience the salvation of God. Paul's an example of this. The other apostles were examples of this. Thousands of Jews in the days after Pentecost were examples of it. God has always kept this remnant for himself, a chosen few that have experienced God's grace by electing them to salvation. Salvation is God's work in us, in those whom he has chosen. Why did he choose us? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why choose me? It's not because of me. It's not because of anything that I did. It's because of him. It's because he decided to bestow grace upon me, upon all that is saved. I can't answer why I was chosen. I can't say why he chose me, but I'm so grateful to him that he did. And it's now my job to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to him in every way. And I pray that's how we approach each day of our lives, with an attitude of serving and honoring him in all that we do. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this time that we have uh, in Romans. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans and for this truth that you've given us, Lord. Just the understanding that you have provided to us in your plans for Israel, in your plans for uh, Gentile nations, and your plans for the church. I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to know uh, how we should live in light of the truth that you've given us here. Pray, Lord, that we would make it a point to be sharing the gospel with everyone around us, Lord. That is what this all hinges on. That is what our, our role is here as your children still here on earth, that we should be sharing the word with all those that we come in contact with. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to focus on that and help us to just use the truths that we've learned here today and just glorify you with them uh, in the way that we live uh, as we leave here today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.